a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Welcome to another edition of Bearing Arms, Cam and Company. My name is Cam Edwards. I'm glad you're with me on the program today. There's a lot of stuff going on. We've got that uh, special session underway in Tennessee. We are uh, keeping our eyes on that. We, uh, uh, you know, honestly, my prediction is that... um, we don't know what's going to happen. I, I don't want to make a prediction here because anything can happen during a special session. The scope of this session set by uh, Governor Bill Lee would uh, seem to preclude a lot of the uh, anti-gun items that the Democrats were hoping to uh, bring to the floor or at least uh, get a committee hearing. Uh, but, you know, Governor Lee is still pushing his version of a red flag law. So gun owners. And uh, Second Amendment Advocates in Tennessee will be uh, pushing back this week. We'll have updates at BarryAndArms.com throughout the uh, special session. Uh, Now, before we get to today's topic, Biden's America, well, it's crushing us. You've got companies laying off tens of thousands of workers, one after the other. Americans working two jobs just to get by. Inflation, pushing hardworking families to the brink. Just look at the price of lunch me next time you go to the grocery store. And a digital dollar could be coming out of the pipeline to completely destroy our way of life. The truth is, you need a plan. You know it. And I know it. And that is why you should call Gold Co. So you can diversify your savings and investments with gold and silver before things get worse. They're a six-time Inc. 5000 winner, 2022 Company of the Year, with thousands of five-star reviews. And they've helped people like you and me place over $1 billion in gold and silver. They're offering up to $10,000 in free silver while supplies last. And if you call them today, qualified callers will get a free Ronald Reagan half-ounce silver coin. So don't wait. Call Gold Co. at 855-412-3806 today. That's 855 412 3806. You know, one of the things that uh, we've heard quite a bit lately, and this is nothing new, uh, but it does seem like the calls to address gun violence from a public health perspective uh, are growing. And over at Salon, they had an interview uh, with David Hemingway. Uh, David Hemingway, you might know that name, you might have run across it. Um, He is a long time. Uh, anti-gun academic, um, and uh, he's pushing the idea that, again, a public health approach uh, to addressing, quote-unquote, gun violence uh, is what's needed here. He's a professor of health policy at uh, Harvard University, director of the uh, Harvard Injury Control Research Center. Back in 2004, he wrote a book, Private Guns, Public Health, Uh, and he says, public health is about prevention. It's not a fight about finding fault. It's not about finding who did something wrong. It's about trying to figure out ways to prevent the problem from occurring. And the way to do that, according to this public health approach, is to limit the number of firearms and uh, limit the number of Americans who own firearms, which, again, sounds a lot like the same old tired point of view of gun control advocates. Um, So the uh, website uh, Undark interviewed... David Hemingway, and I thought there were a couple of fascinating responses here. They asked at one point, you're known for supporting a public health approach to combating gun violence. What does that entail? And he said, if you ask me for a one-sentence description of the public health approach, it would be, let's make it really difficult to get injured or to injure someone, and let's make it really easy to be safe. So, for example, he says, I do some work about obesity, and the public health approach to obesity would be, let's make it really easy for people to get healthy food and make it harder for people to get junk food. Let's make it really easy for people to get healthy exercise and make it harder for them to be couch potatoes. And we do just the opposite in the United States. Now, I, 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 just just a digression here. 
But again, let's make it harder for somebody to be a couch potato. What if somebody wants to be a couch potato? What if somebody doesn't want to go to the gym three days a week, five days a week, seven days a week? What what then? Uh, are we going to try to nudge them? Are we going to uh, do things like, you know, offer wellness discounts, things of that nature? Uh, or are we going to, you know, criminalize the possession of a quarter pounder? Are we going to uh, mandate... 30 minutes of calisthenics for people, because again, that's what the public health approach to gun violence looks like when the anti-gun advocates start writing laws. It's not about suggesting ways to be safer. It's certainly not about encouraging education and training. Oh, God, no. Because again, that encourages gun ownership, right? Um, a, a more apt comparison, I think, would be uh, a public health approach to obesity would be don't eat, right? Because that is basically what the public health approach to quote unquote gun violence is. Don't own a gun. Uh, now, and what's kind of fascinating about this is they go to all of this trouble to try to disguise this authoritarian impulse. Um, at one point in this interview, Hemingway was asked about uh, are there things that can be done at the state or local level? And he says, at the local level, there are so many interesting, exciting initiatives that we think work. Uh, hospitals uh, are having these. He says, it used to be always at level one trauma center. Somebody would get shot, they'd fix them up, and they'd send them back out. And those people are at very high risk of getting shot again or for shooting somebody else. And now what you do is you have designated inmates at the hospital to say, oh, someone came in for a shooting. What can we do to make sure to help them so that it's less likely that they'll go back out and get shot, less likely that they'll retaliate and shoot someone else? Again, no law involved there, right? He says, we have initiatives in Boston trying to reduce the likelihood that women will get involved in gun violence. In the United States, one way that the wrong people get guns is with straw purchasing. So a straw purchaser, basically you're buying a gun for somebody else who won't, buy a, uh, won't pass a background check. When a woman buys a gun, she's disproportionately likely to be a straw purchaser, Hemingway says, to buying a gun for her boyfriend who shouldn't have a gun. Uh, and he said, what's happening, what's been happening in Boston is to try to work with women's groups and women in the inner city and other places, to try to convince them that, you know, look, you and everybody else should know it should become the social norm that if your boyfriend asks you to buy a gun for them or to hold a gun for them illegally, you're going to be at real risk because if you get caught, you have nothing to trade because you don't know what's going on and they can put you in jail and have put people like that in jail for many years. And you're also hurting your own community. So it should be the social norm. That you and everybody else knows if your boyfriend asks you to do that, your response should be get rid of that boyfriend because that's really a horrible, horrible thing that they're doing. Now, no disagreement there. I would note that gun owners in the firearms industry have been doing this for years as well with things like the Don't Lie for the Other Guy program. But encouraging people not to become straw purchasers is a far different thing from encouraging people not to own guns. And that ultimately is at the heart of the public health approach. Um, one of the last questions was, uh, you're a scientist, you talk about these data sets and policy based on evidence. So is it working? You've given some very positive examples, but I wonder if the issue is just that when we turn on TV, the news is terrible. So again, may maybe things aren't as bad as the news makes it out to be. Hemingway's response is very telling. He says, quote, no, things have gotten worse in the United States. And here's how he defines things getting worse. More people are carrying guns. There's more military weapons out there. 
gun ownership rates have increased a little bit. A lot of bad things are happening, he says. So again, gun ownership itself, people exercising the right to keep and bear arms, according to David Hemingway, is a bad thing in, in and of itself, right? It doesn't matter that we're in the midst of perhaps the biggest one-year drop in the U.S. homicide rate. That doesn't matter because more people are carrying guns. More people are buying guns. More people own guns. And David Hemingway says, that's bad. He goes on to say, politically, it's been very hard because one of our two parties is aligned with the gun lobby. So it's hard. But what I would say, he says, from a public health standpoint, is that there's a lot of good things happening, but also that there have been so many successes in public health over the last 150 years. He goes on to say, from the sanitation revolution in the 1800s to immunizations to the U.S. reducing smoking, you name it, there are so many good things. By the way, I would, I would remind David that as the rates of smoking have declined in the United States, the rates of drug use have gone up. You've got fewer people smoking tobacco, you've got more people smoking pot. So, again, these things don't happen in a vacuum. But I, I, I digress. He says, uh, all these things took a long time. Even getting physicians to wash their hands took about 20 years before they would do that. But people who believe in public health have pushed and pushed and pushed until suddenly things tip. It's three steps forward, two steps back, but it's always been overall this incredible movement towards having richer, happier lives. Which again is why a lot of us own farms to begin with. Right? So that we can have richer, happier lives. That those lives are not taken from us. Those lives are not lost to a violent criminal, an intruder coming through our window at two o'clock in the morning. But also the ability to, you know, go out and have fun. Shooting is fun. Spending time with friends and family at the range is a great activity for tens of millions of Americans who, by the way, are safe and responsible. Now, again, note the things that David Hemingway didn't talk about. He didn't want to talk about banning guns, but gun ownership's bad, right? He didn't want to talk about restricting the right to carry, but he's troubled by the fact that more people are carrying. Uh, this is part and parcel, I think, of the public health approach. They, they, they try to downplay their desire for legislation, but what they really want at the end of the day requires legislation. It requires telling people, no, you can't exercise your right to keep and bear arms. Ultimately, the public health approach to gun violence is just a rebranding of the gun control movement. Now, for those of us who are Second Amendment supporters, who don't believe that we can ban and arrest our way to safety by criminalizing a fundamental civil right, there are things that uh, we actually might be able to agree with David Hemingway on. You know, uh, community violence intervention programs, those that have a proven track record of success, those that have transparency and funding, where's that money going, uh, those that have oversight and accountability. You know, Hemingway would probably find support from a lot of gun owners for things like that. It's again, it's when you get into the punitive uh, efforts, punishing people for exercising their right to keep and bear arms, making it a crime to do so. That's that's when we rightfully say no. Again, I don't have any problem with reaching out to women in Boston saying, hey, listen, you know, if your boyfriend asks you to buy a gun for him, that's against the law and you could be the one that ends up getting in trouble. That's great. 
But why is David Hemingway also not talking about the need to bring firearms education and training to underserved communities, places where, again, guns have simply been labeled taboo for decades. Gun ownership is simply not talked about in polite society, and yet there are a lot of guns out there. Why are we not? Why is fostering a culture of lawful, responsible gun ownership not a part of the public health approach to reducing gun violence? Because, again, that normalizes gun ownership. And that is something that the anti-gunners will never do. All right, turning our attention to today's Armed Citizens story, our good deed of the day, and our recidivist report, let's talk about what's going on in the gun-controlled state of California, where an inspector general's report says the uh, state's probation department ignored red flags about a gang member who killed two cops in the state of California. Now, we've touched on this story. We've we've talked about this a couple of times, but this is uh, some new information. Uh, According to the uh, East Bay Times, family members of a convicted gang member warned the L.A. County Probation Department that the probationer had become abusive, was using drugs, and was carrying a gun more than a week before he killed two police officers in El Monte and then shot himself in June of last year. This, according to a uh, report described as scathing by the East Bay Times from the L.A. County's Office of Inspector General. According to the report, Justin Flores' probation officer ignored a, quote, barrage of red flags that should have resulted in law enforcement taking him off of the streets for violating his parole. Again, this is California. All kinds of gun control laws in the books that are ostensibly aimed at stopping somebody like Mr. Flores from possessing a gun in the first place. Those laws didn't work, but neither did the probation system. The report says, quote, after review of Mr. Flores' probation file, the Office of Inspector General finds that the probation department failed to properly monitor Mr. Flores, failed to report his noncompliance, failed to act on pertinent information they received on Mr. Flores regarding allegations of domestic violence, gun possession, and illegal drug use, and failed to make local law enforcement aware that Mr. Flores may be armed with a gun and dangerous. The report details that the probation department had spoken to Flores just six times in the 16 months after he pleaded no contest to possessing a firearm with a prior felony conviction. During that time, only one of the contacts was in person. It did not occur until almost a year after his probation began. Yeah. Multiple instances, the deputy probation officer assigned to the case and properly listed Flores as having reported by phone without actually having made contact with him. I I tried to call him, but good enough for me, I guess. Compliance check by the probation department's developing increased safety through arms reduction management team, or DISARM. It's amazing. They got, they, got, they got time to come up with all these cute little acronyms. They just apparently don't have time to do their damn jobs. Had to edit myself there. Uh, anyway, the uh, compliance check by the uh, disarm team in June of 2021 determined that Flores was not living at the address in his file. At that point, he had failed to report for probation for approximately three months. Uh, the uh, probation department had not located him at the address in his file. His family didn't know where he was, yet, quote, no action was taken at this time to violate Mr. Flores for his failure to report. So again, they can't find him. He's on probation, and nothing happens. Nothing happens. The report says that a little more than a week before Flores killed Officer Joseph Santana and Corporal Michael Paredes, family members had reached out to the probation department. Probation department received information on June 2nd, 2022 from Mr. Flores' family members that Mr. Flores was not only using PCP, but that he was armed with a gun and was dangerous. Flores' probation officer forwarded that info to another probation officer assigned to the Pico Rivera Sheriff's Station, 
But no one requested that the department's special enforcement operations check on Flores. No one related that information to local law enforcement. Here is somebody, again, who is in violation of his probation. Had been rarely looked after by the probation department. Rarely checked on. And when his own family says, hey, you know what? He's using drugs. He's got a gun. We're concerned about him. What do they do? They sat on that information. Flores had three outstanding warrants for his arrest at the time. Probation department didn't run a warrant check on Flores until just days before the shooting when Flores missed his last probation appointment. The report says for almost 16 months, despite his whereabouts being unknown, and the Department of Probation officer having no direct contact with him for months at a time, no warrant checks were conducted. By the time his record was checked on June 6, 2022, two of his three warrants had been outstanding for over two years. And the third for almost a year. Supposed to be getting drug tested. Not a single drug test ever conducted. The report from the Office of Inspector General makes uh, several recommendations, including the probation department should require two in-person contacts with probationers each month, carry out regular audits of its client files, and create a formal process to notify law enforcement when the agency, quote, receives reliable information that a probationer is armed and dangerous. Now, again, you would think we wouldn't need to put that in writing. You would think that those rules would already be in place. But no, apparently not. And again, rather than fix the problem in the probation system, rather than fix the problem in the juvenile justice system, both of which, by the way, have been highlighted by problems in L.A. County but are endemic to the entire state of California, what are lawmakers in Sacramento doing? We talked about this with Rick Travis last week. Going after the right to carry. Trying to make it more expensive for you to purchase a firearm. Going after the youth shooting sports. Going after legal gun owners in every way imaginable. We'll turn a blind eye to what violent criminals on probation are doing. Now, again, you want a public health approach to combating gun violence? Here's something. Provide consequences for those violent offenders. Oh, I, I know, I know, I know. That doesn't really get doctors and nurses and community violence intervention programs involved. But, you know, when somebody's been convicted of these types of crimes and the state turns a blind eye to their uh, violations, while, again, trying to criminalize lawful gun owners from having a 20-round magazine, from having commonly owned, not in California, not just commonly owned rifles, commonly owned handguns. Something has gone woefully wrong. Now, today's Armed Citizen story uh, from Texas, where a, a good Samaritan shot a suspect who had allegedly knocked out an elderly man in a restaurant bathroom over the weekend. This from uh, WFIN, just after noon on August 14th. So I, I'm sorry, last weekend, I guess this was. The uh, Leon County Sheriff's Office received a call from a uh, restaurant, Woody's Smokehouse in Centerville, about shots being fired. Authorities say that the uh, suspect in this case, Kevin Craig Anderson, had entered the barbecue restaurant uh, in a, quote, harassing manner and had, quote, aggressively approached several customers inside the store. Uh, Anderson, resident of Houston, which is about 150 miles south of Centerville, he reportedly went into the bathroom at Woody's and, quote, began assaulting an elderly male, knocking him unconscious onto the tile floor. Even after the man fell to the ground, Anderson reportedly continued assaulting him. Uh, that is when a concealed carry holder uh, in the state of Texas then became involved, tried to stop Anderson from continuing assaulting the unconscious man. Anderson allegedly turned on the 
armed citizen and uh, knocked him to the floor, continued to assault him. That is when the concealed carry holder then drew his gun, fired two shots at Anderson. Anderson was shot in the right arm, fled the restaurant in a car. Authorities found him uh, in a vehicle on the shoulder of a nearby highway. He was transported via helicopter to a local hospital. Case still under investigation by the Sheriff's Department and the uh, Texas Rangers, but the armed citizen, I would not expect to uh, face any charges here, acting in defense of both himself and originally defense of another, uh, although the uh, firearm apparently wasn't used until, again, he was in fear of his own life after Anderson had allegedly assaulted not only that elderly man, but then turned his attention to the armed citizen as well. We'll keep our eyes open for uh, any more details out of uh, Centerville, Texas. But again, right now, this looks like a uh, justified use of force there in the Lone Star State. Finally today, in the right place, at the right time, willing and able to do the right thing uh, from uh, Rhode Island. A couple of uh, off-duty officers from Massachusetts uh, in the right place at the right time. We were able to do, uh, rescue two elderly women from a burning car on a busy interstate. Uh, according to the State Police Association of Massachusetts, on a Saturday, uh, one of its off-duty officers noticed a crash between a tractor-trailer and a small SUV on I- uh, Interstate I-95 or 195 in uh, Richmond. Uh, after seeing a fire growing inside that SUV, the uh, off-duty officer parked, ran across the highway, to uh, help the passengers inside, Trooper was able to pry one of the doors off of the SUV with help from other Good Samaritans. Two elderly women safely removed before the car came, became completely engulfed in flames. Officials say the uh, trooper suffered lacerations to both hands, trying to get the door open, was treated on scene by uh, EMS. Uh, again, thankfully, uh, those were apparently the most serious injuries that anybody suffered because of the quick thinking not only of this uh, off-duty officer, but the other Good Samaritans who saw what was going on also stopped to help. So, Again, in the right place, at the right time, willing able to do the right thing, a, a huge tip of the hat to that off-duty officer and all of those who came to the aid of those uh, two women there on the interstate in Rhode Island. Now, that is going to do it for this edition of Bearing Arms, Cam & Company, but I am looking forward to being back with you tomorrow. We're going to be talking with Cozy, excuse me, Cozy, <laughs> Cody Wisniewski of the uh, Firearms Policy Coalition. Got a lot of stuff, actually, to talk with uh, Cody about tomorrow. Looking forward to that. In the meantime, don't forget to check out BearingArms.com throughout the day. We're keeping you up to date on all of the latest Second Amendment news and information from all across the nation. And if you like what you see, I would encourage you to become a VIP or VIP Gold member. All you have to do, go to BarryandArms.com slash subscribe, use the promo code GUNRIGHTS, and you can get a significant savings on your VIP or VIP Gold membership. And as our way of saying thanks for showing your support, we're going to give you exclusive content you won't find anywhere else. News stories and analysis that matter, just like your support. So thank you again. Have a great rest of your Monday, as good as Mondays can be. Looking forward to seeing you back here tomorrow. Until then, be well, be safe, and be free.